Hello and welcome to part two of Back to Life, the podcast where we share stories of recovery and creativity. I'm your host and my name is Millie Charles. Thanks so much for joining me today and before I introduce my guest this episode I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened to the first episode and taken the time to get in touch and share your thoughts with me. It's really really lovely to hear um, and to be completely honest with you it was quite scary quite a scary prospect to release this podcast into the world it's an idea I've had for a very long time so um, it's really meant the world to have such lovely feedback from you guys Um, I really really do appreciate it loads and if you do have a chance uh, to write a little review uh, or send give us a rating or both uh, that would be incredible it really does make a huge difference to giving the podcast a little bit of kudos and, and making sure that other people who need to hear these conversations can find them. Anyway, so let's get to it. My guest this episode is another incredibly inspiring and unique individual who's taken just the hardest stuff that life's thrown at her and now uses exactly that to bring healing and joy to others. Her name is Lizzie Allen. She's a comedian, a transpersonal counsellor, a comedy therapist, and she's fostered a beautiful community around her work using stand-up comedy to help people turn their darkest experiences into comedy gold, which we're going to be hearing all about. She also founded the organisation Hilarapy, and there's a link in the show description to find out more about that. She's also recently done a brilliant TED talk called Comedy Can Change the World If You Make Friends With Your Shame. Lizzie is currently living in Canada, but she's from the same small West Country town as me. And uh, we actually went to the same school, but that's not really how our paths crossed. Uh, It's much stranger, weirder and darker than that. Uh, This one goes deep for both of us. So if you're sitting comfortably, let's roll the podcast. So Lizzie, we were at school together, we were we were in the same school, but that's not really how we met. We met when we both ended up in a psychiatric hospital in Bath, both very young. I was 20, I think you were 19. And yeah, we both were sectioned in a psychiatric hospital uh, called Hillview Lodge. Um, Hillview Lodge, fun times. Yeah. Um, and that's really where our paths crossed. I don't think our paths particularly crossed before that t- that point. But then we were landed in this very unusual sort of situation together. So yeah, how did you do you want to tell me how you got there? I, I have a, some idea. Sure, I'd love to tell you how I became <laughs> uh, sectioned under the Mental Health Act against my will. I was a bit of a lost teenager. And um, I didn't know what to do with my life. I struggled at school and I thought, you know what? I am going to go traveling for a year. And when I come back, I'm going to definitely know what I need to do. I worked three jobs and uh, saved up the money and then jumped on a plane with a friend and we went to India. And India hit me like a sledgehammer in the face, the poverty, the reality. But I fell in love with it eventually. I carried on to... Singapore then Thailand and in Thailand I was really getting depressed I was really going downhill and I was just kind of going along with what other people were taking I was smoking weed every day and I was um, taking slimming pills which is speed from the chemist and uh, on Thai New Year I I basically uh, flipped through the veil into 
into another into a parallel dimension and started you know this sort of drug-induced psychosis episode and you know over the next few days I didn't sleep I had you know constant messages about the existence of the planet I could feel the entire world crying all the suffering in the world it was it was incredibly powerful yet crazy time and I tried to call my mum over with the power of my mind (laughs) Um, you know and everyone kind of just saw how unwell I was and how you know strange my behavior was and you know I kept trying to sort of tell everyone it's okay my mum's coming and I'm still a child I don't know what that part was it was kind of my innocence I guess and then I ended up taking all my clothes off in a restaurant and doing a power war dance to protect energy and all also it made sense at the time (laughs) you know these things really do make sense when you're in a parallel dimension it's hard to explain to the everyman Um, and yeah and so I get it Lizzie I get it I know you would understand you know you would understand so many parallels right so many parallels So then they grabbed me, uh, a group of people grabbed me and uh, put me in the back of a hot van and held me down and I fought like an animal and it was really scary and they carried me into a hospital on the island, you know, it was Copanya, it's a tiny little sort of health centre. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) And and they tied me to a bed with t-shirts and I was like, my mum's coming, I didn't understand what was going on. And then they injected me and then I apparently was there for about a week. At one point, my friend who was kind of sitting outside, she said, "Um, you must have got free off the bed because she saw me whipping through the hospital, (laughs) whipping through the the thing. And then the nurse is chasing me down. But I have no memory of that, which is a bit scary. Um, My mum grabbed me, well, grabbed me. She came and picked me up, you know, poor woman. And... Um, we had to go to a hospital in Bangkok for a week and they really dosed me up with these crazy pills and and then we got, you know, escorted home by two orderlies from, <laughs> you know, the hospital at great expense and um, and then I wouldn't calm down at home. I was like a caged animal. I think I was just like, I was just kind of off on another planet. I was still in psychosis. I was getting loads of messages through. It was kind of quite crazy and then you know my doctor was called and and I, I think I showed him my breasts actually I was like I'm still a child as I listen and he was like okay uh, I'm going to <laughs> recommend she goes to the psychiatric ward and uh so off I went and uh and then of course you and I we began our our real soul journey together didn't we um yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I have very hazy memories of those of those times. My entrance to the hospital was not quite as, um, I don't know, not quite as exciting as yours in a way. It was like a lot darker. Um, it's very I, dramatic. Yeah, it was very dramatic after a very serious suicide attempt. And um, But that wasn't actually why I got sectioned. I got sectioned because after making a very serious suicide attempt, which left me with my leg in a full cast and quite battered and broken, I managed to climb out the window um, the first day in the psychiatric hospital and go clubbing. (laughs) Um, 
And so when I got back, they were like, uh, you're going to have to stay here and not go clubbing. So we're going to have to put a section on you. They're weird places, aren't they? Because they're kind of like holding spaces. You're not doing anything that's really helping you to get better other than taking some drugs. It was a strange place. And at the time you could smoke, couldn't you? So they had that smoking yeah. room and and we just sat there all day long. And there was that woman, June, who was about, I don't know, she was like in her 70s, maybe 80s. And she had one leg and I sat next to her and I remember she was such a character. I really loved her. I said, oh, who are you? And she said, I'm June, I'm a baroness from Germany. And she had such a sort of well, she was so well-spoken and she looked at me across the room one day and she went, you there, how are you leaving? And I went, oh, in a taxi, uh, probably. And she went, I'll go with you then. And I went, all right. <laughs> I remember so, yeah. her throwing an ashtray at my head when I walked in the door once. That's my only memory of June. <laughs> I do remember exactly who you mean, but I remember her just picking up an ashtray, just launching it at my head. And um, and yeah, that was how it could go. You didn't know. Unpredictable. I thought I was going to be a famous rapper. I was under delusions of grandeur. I thought my rap album, True Say was going to change the world was this around uh, the time of hearsay uh, probably yeah I think so it was just like the name just came to me you know I mean hearsay sounds like a rumor but true say sounds you know gospel doesn't the word it? of God yeah <laughs> that's right that's right yeah. um, I do actually remember you writing loads and I do remember thinking wow you do have a real talent uh, for writing sadly I don't know if I remember hearing your rap album did it get written? No, it it didn't actually get written. No, I mean it's still in the it's still in the works. I haven't taken it off the vision board. I just had this this kind of feeling, or even like it was like a vision, like it already happened or was just about to happen. I was going to walk into a producer's office. He was going to say, "Lizzie, I know you've got absolutely no musical experience or any you know track record of any sort, but we're going to give you everything you need to write your." album and produce it that was just like the logical next step I didn't even really question why I was in the psychiatric ward I didn't really know why I was there or even think to ask I mean I was completely in another dimension but I, I'll tell you I did have that experience I've just popped this in here I did have this experience of walking down the hall and then suddenly kind of feeling this overwhelming love coming out of me and filling the space and I just and my mind just went you're Jesus reincarnated and of course I just believed what my mind said but you know it, it wasn't true I'm I'm not Jesus reincarnated and I I don't wear Birkenstocks that's pretty much how I know but that rapping career that was pervasive I, I felt that for the whole time I was there and I was there for about six to eight weeks I think I think the kind of way that you were mad sounds like more enjoyable than the way that I was mad. I was mad in a very self-destructive, neurotic way. Feeling I was Jesus would have been great, actually, at that time. I felt like the opposite, I suppose. But yeah, so that's where our paths crossed. And then I guess we went on our, our merry ways, <laughs> but we remained friends on social media. And then many years later, I saw you post a video which was your graduation performance after doing your um, comedy degree and there was a bit in there where you were talking about being in the hospital about your psychotic episode about being sectioned the piece was called sectioned and in it you talked about meeting another patient on the ward who had weed but wouldn't give it to you 
And I thought, I think that's me. <laughs> do you remember that incident? I do. I, I remember it. It was a it was a pivotal moment in my um, getting day release from the psychiatric ward because I was, you know, I was sort of rapping in everyone's faces. If the doctor sort of wanted to do an assessment on me, I would rap in his face and he would just like uh, up my dosage, which just really wasn't helping me at all because I was smoking weed on top of it. And my friend was um, bringing a little bit of weed in for me now and again, and I was letting him eat my hospital food in return. And uh, and one day I didn't have any, and you were you were known known about the ward too, to be quite <laughs> <laughs> to always have your stock in, you know. So I um I came over and I asked you. I said, "Hey, Millie, can I have a? Can I just have a smoke or borrow a smoke or buy a smoke?" And you were like no and I was like oh please please I was like that annoying kid sister I was like please please and you said you went no and I went why not and you went because you'll talk too much and I said (laughs) and I said I promise I promise I won't talk and then I was really manipulative because I started to raise my voice I said I promise if you give me a smoke and you were just like all right all right and uh, that was awful of me thinking about it. But, you know, um, you got to do what you got to do when you're in hospital, don't you? <laughs> or when Babe, you need I drugs. understand. Yeah, you definitely do what you got to do. I just remember, I do remember being scared that you would go into an even deeper psychosis. I mean, you're already, as you say, pretty psychotic. And I just thought if I give you the spliff that sends you over the edge, then that will be bad. But it sounds like I was quite harsh as well. So sorry for no, that. No, I don't think it... No, I think it's fairly sensible that you were making that assessment at the time. You know, <laughs> fairly sensible. But what you did do is you said to me, no, you'll talk too much. And and then I realised, oh, I just thought, you know, I can do that. I can smoke a spliff and not say anything. So I just stopped saying anything in earshot of anyone with a clipboard. And within a couple of days, they, they kind of, they had kind of made the assessment that I was well enough to leave the hospital. But you see, the, the funny thing is, nothing changed in my head. You know, I was still completely, I don't know, like walking on air or something. I have no idea. And, and I really believe the drugs that they were giving me was, were really keeping me high. They were keeping me in that place. And um, yeah, they let me out after that. And then I started to kind of get more access to alcohol and other things. And I would just go out and... And I'd like be meeting up with friends and then end up kind of tripping because the, the strength of the medication I was on coupled with a drink, even just a bit of alcohol, just I was tripping. It was horrible. I'd be holding on to the earth and my friends would be like, oh, gosh, we better send her back. It was it was really horrible, really. And highly embarrassing, you know, after the fact when I when I got well, I was really ashamed. How long did it take you to get well to kind of come back to reality as such? It was really overnight. It was absolutely bizarre. They'd basically said you can go if you want. Um, But my mum wouldn't let me come home because she just said I was completely mad. And I had a brother and sister who were just infants. And then when my grandpa died, my mum went, you can come home. And we went off to Scotland to this funeral and I had all this medication. I just said to my mum, said, I'm not going to take these drugs anymore. And I woke up in the morning and I was back in this planet if you know what I mean like I'd been in another place for so long it believing that I was completely limitless that my power was 
just unstoppable. My love and my purpose and everything was unstoppable. And suddenly I was just nobody. And the first thing I woke up and I thought, the first thing I thought was, oh no, I'm not going to be a famous rapper. And then the second thing that came just a moment after was, oh shit, I told everyone I was going to be a famous rapper. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> You're like, oh no. And that was it. Then I was like, I couldn't see anyone. I isolated. I cut everyone off. I was depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. Then then began the next chapter of my healing. But I was definitely back in what we might call this 3D reality. And it was very boring in comparison. I will say that for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've certainly had that kind of, and I think most people can relate to that, waking up after a night out and having a bit of a cringe. Oh, what did I say? But to wake up from a sort of three month psychotic episode, that cringe must have been quite phenomenal. Oh, it was horrendous. It was so shameful. You know, the stigma that's surrounding mental illness. You know, I know today, you know, 21 years later, I know today that what that was for me was a huge gift. It was a spiritual awakening. I had access to information. Yes, it was the dark night of my soul, but it was also, I, I can't really explain it, um, but it, today it's a gift. And back then it wasn't. It was what's wrong with me that I would go so off piste and you know the person next to me can take a hundred times more drugs than I've taken and not even blink and there's me like taking my clothes off in public doing energy war dances you know they weren't war dances they were like energy kind of I was protecting oh it's just crazy like I, I don't know but yeah incredibly shameful um it took a long time to unwind that and I and, and when I you know when I got to doing that show that you were referencing where I did that show at university that was on the back of a research project about using comedy as a therapeutic tool to shine a light on my own self-stigma and shame and I was already kind of four or five years into recovery by that point so I had done a lot of work on you know therapeutic work on that and so that changed everything for me that show because I had to be with my shame a lot. I had to be with my shame to write it. Um, I had to be with my shame to share it. And actually what, what it was was incredibly cathartic, but it helped other people. And I didn't realize it would have that effect. Uh, a, a classmate came up to me at the end of the show and she said, I have bipolar and I never tell anyone. And I'd known her for three years, you know, so it was crazy. And then a psychiatrist who worked at Hillview Lodge saw it on YouTube and requested that I come and do a performance to educate staff and bring hope to service users at their mental health awareness day or something. And, and they paid me to do it. And then that snowballed and people kept asking me to perform it. And the response was kind of like, oh, so performing my story from a place of wellness also infusing it with comedy was a tool for change and you know very quickly I thought well I'll, I'll start teaching other people how to do this and and that was kind of the birth of what I do now which is comedy therapy. It's so incredible I think that comedy is such a an amazing vehicle I think it connects people you know, in a way not many other mediums do. Um, and also, like you say, you can really deliver those serious, hard-hitting, difficult messages 
um, in a way that doesn't feel preachy or off-putting or lectury or cringy. So, yeah, so tell me how kind of you got from the psychiatric hospital to doing that degree. What was what was the start point for you with your, your recovery journey? Um, I knew probably about, I mean... I had a, my dad was in recovery from uh, drugs and alcohol. My mum had left him when I was two. And so I knew that you could live happily without drink and drugs. So I had a father in recovery and that, and that was like a sort of seed that was planted very early on. You know, I started working as a care worker after looking after June with one leg in the hospital. I used to run around getting her cups of tea And my mum said, oh, you should be a care worker. So I started doing care work. But at the same time, I was working in a nightclub and all my friends were doing drugs. And uh, I just kind of got pulled into it. But my mental health was so bad because of what had happened and how far I had gone that whenever I kind of took drugs, I went, uh, it really, really scared me because I thought I was going to go mad again. And I certainly didn't want to go mad again. It was kind of a place you don't really want to go back to once you've come back from there. Um, I don't regret it. But yeah, so uh, by the age of 21, I knew I, I, I needed to be abstinent. But I didn't know how. And I just started doing geographicals. I moved away from everyone was doing drugs and I moved to a new city. I moved closer to my dad actually down in Devon and I began again there, but I couldn't let go of weed and weed was still so bad for my mental health. Um, But I managed to not do coke anymore or, you know, any of the other stuff that was going around. I just went along with it. You know, you felt like always. So I wanted connection, right? I really wanted to belong. And I was really struggling with my uh, sexuality. I hadn't come out. I hadn't come out to myself. It was just really painful to be in such self-rejection. And so, uh, you know, I kind of carried on with my life and I would, I started to do really well. You know, I was, I I became a youth worker. Then I started working for the youth offending team. Then I was working for intervention and I joined a choir and I did some hip hop dancing, but I would always spin back round to being on my own, smoking dope in my bedroom and feeling like I was, um, you know, losing the plot. And I started my, you know, I started to have relationships with women that, of course, I couldn't show up in. I couldn't be myself in these relationships. So, you know, they crashed and burned and that was incredibly painful. And I kept reliving, you know, rejection and abandonment. But really, the truth was, as I was rejecting and abandoning myself every single time. And eventually I was sort of like, I'd been living in Manchester for 11 months and I'd been like, completely off my head back on the party scene moved in with people who were partying every other night and I I just couldn't deal with it I was like I have to go and do some voluntary work so I went off to Morocco and to go and work with children right but I was really unwell and it was like on the way over I was reading the book and it was like Morocco supplies 42 percent of the world's hashish and I thought okay there's a sort of you know subconscious choice there and within a week, I had scored really strong weed, and I was—I was just—I got myself into a right, a right emotional 
been down and I was there for two months just going like horrendously into depression and paranoia and just awful. I didn't know what I was doing and I came home and I exploded on my family. I didn't know how to cry. I didn't know how to talk about my feelings. I didn't know how to connect. I just was just so lost. And um, and my dad called me up and he said, are you ready? <laughs> And uh, and I said, yeah, I'm ready. I wanna, I want, I wanna change. I wanna stop using drugs. And he said, well, come to this. Um, and it was a Narcotics Anonymous camp out in Penzance. And I went with him. And I heard the message for the first time. I'd been to meetings before. I'd 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 been around it my whole life. But for the first time, I I realised it was the therapeutic value of one addict helping another staying clean. And it, and it changed my life, right? So within three months, I was actually completely abstinent. And that was 11 years ago. Well, amazing that, that when you talk about that self-rejection and the pain of self-rejection and self-abandonment, I mean, that resonates so deeply. It really, I really kind of felt that because that's where I was in my life for so long. And it's, you know, now... You know, I used to say that my biggest fear was rejection and and that I would do anything to avoid rejection. But like you say, I just had I rejected myself every single day. And that's a horrible, horrible way to live. So so you got into recovery and, and you stayed in recovery. Uh, so where, how do you go from what you were doing with sort of youth offending and youth work and, and all that work that you were doing to comedy? Well, I'd got I'd got all that experience and then I got into recovery and I'd moved back to Bath and, um, you know, was getting well. And after a couple of years, all these kind of older women, older, wiser women were saying to me, you need to go and get some education, right? You, what are you going to do with your life? I'd really struggled with school and I just, I can't go back to school, you know, but I did. I, I found a comedy writing and performance degree. It just came and it popped up and it was the first one they'd ever run and it was up in Manchester. And, and I love comedy. Humour was such a relief for me when I was growing up in our family because it was such a challenging time growing up. Um, my mum and dad had broken up. My mum was really struggling with the trauma of, of her past and she smoked dope daily and my dad was struggling and he'd been, you know, he'd been through abuse at boarding school and so you know as children it was really kind of scary but it was the laughter that really made me feel safe and it really made me feel like well when everyone's laughing it's all right isn't it all right when everyone's laughing and it kind of became my my go-to I became the clown you know I became the one that always wanted to make people laugh because when the room was laughing I was safe unfortunately you know for for a long time I kind of just thought that's all I'm I'm good for you know so I didn't know how to cry I didn't know how to be vulnerable like I was saying a bit earlier about that stuff so I'd kind of started that journey in recovery and then I went to university and then I I did a research project as my final piece for uni and I wanted to to see if I could use comedy as a therapeutic tool to shine a light on my self-stigma and shame because I was so ashamed still um I carried a lot of shame and um it sounds like really pioneering to me. I mean, you're the first person I've heard of doing this. Is this something that you learnt from somewhere somewhere else, or was this your your idea? I just I feel like I've really stumbled into this uh, role, and yeah, it was a funny one actually because I I didn't know what to do comedy about, and I'd broken up out of this sort of really horrendous relationship, um, very kind of toxic relationship, and 
and I just didn't know what to write comedy about and I met up with this amazing comedian um, and he said he said just write about what you know like what have you done that's funny and I went well I thought I was Jesus reincarnated once I guess that's pretty funny and he was like yeah write about that and um, and so I had to do a research project and my tutor was like well what's your what's your question right and she kind of almost had to spoon feed it to me because I was like I don't know and she was like well what about the therapeutic value and I was like I was like okay yeah 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 that's my question like not that she could even give it to me but she sort of did and um luckily so I began researching comedy therapists who's doing comedy who's using comedy as a tool to help people because you've got drama therapy art therapy you know those are the big hitters right but who's doing comedy therapy and there's actually it's actually a budding a budding thing that's growing um and through my journey to where I am today I I think I believe I'm the only person who's building a community around it so I've been offered well I've done art therapy and um, drama therapy and pretty much all the therapies but I've never been offered comedy therapy I would have loved to have done comedy therapy I think it sounds brilliant and I can absolutely see how that works I mean I often have thought it myself you know I'm in 12-step recovery as well so we go to meetings and meetings are just they're just rich places of stories aren't they and people human experiences and people from all walks of life and there is huge comedic value in in so much you know and there's so much humor amongst us there I think that often kind of surprises people how much sort of dark humor um, addicts have there is so much humor in there there has to be doesn't there really I absolutely agree because I, I mean I've come to the point where I see that the light and the dark belong together you know we all have light in us and we all have dark in us and you know we live in a in duality and we have to balance it you know that's that's the kind of tightrope we walk with with good mental health you know and whether you're somebody who identifies as having mental health issues or difficulties or not everyone struggles with mental health issues you know it's just the nature of being alive and um and you know bringing that humor in i'll tell you what it is you know a punchline provides release from tension just like healing brings relief from pain. You know, so so when you're telling these these huge stories, these big heavy stories, when you can make or bring a piece of laughter or a moment of of joyous merriment into the whole kind of experience, it means that we can kind of sigh, like we get that kind of break from from the heaviness and 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 we're we're telling these stories from a place of wellness. So why can't we, you know, why can't we have a, a laugh about it? As long as we're not belittling our experiences or or trying to kind of cover or mask it with humour. I think it's really healthy. I mean, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of humour. I was watching uh, one of your sketches that you sent me or one of your um, performances, and uh, you were talking about planning your own funeral. And that's, it's just an absolute classic, isn't it? I mean, meet an addict who hasn't planned their own funeral in a very sort of (laughs) self-centred and morbid way. I mean, I used to, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a big preoccupation of mine, like 
God, would anyone actually be at my funeral? What would they say? Oh, she had so much promise and so much talent. And then they'd fi- maybe find a note- notebook of mine with like crack adult scribblings in and go, <laughs> my God, she could have been the next Sylvia Plath. And that's kind of how I imagined it. But um, I don't know if that would have happened. But yeah, I mean, you um, you you did a brilliant uh, sketch about it. I was I was lolling hard, actually. And I think that's such a relatable thing. You also said, you know, you've used humour to process and deal with some really heavy subjects in life as well, including grief and death of uh, a member of your family. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that, that show came off the back of some some therapeutic comedy that I used you know I used my own you know my own preachings to 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 do it and I'd been over in England because I live in Canada now and my cousin died like from a farming accident and it was so sudden and and it was like horrible and horrific and then within kind of I, I was still there and we went to the funeral a week or two later and you know at that time all my family were drinking and everybody was drunk and or taking drugs of some sort and I was incredibly lonely and heartbroken and it was really really tough to be in that environment and went to his funeral he had like a thousand people at his funeral he's really popular um young farmer and I and I and I kind of went home really heartbroken and I came back and I just had to process it so I started to do my stream of consciousness writing and out came all the kind of anger and the and the sort of like upset and the blame and it all came out and then I got these kind of these light bulbs of of absurd humor within it like it was a point where I was sitting in the funeral in the you know in the service they were doing this slideshow of of him and every single photo he was drunk right and they were just like they're like oh here's Todd he always fell asleep you know as one of him asleep in the pub you know he'd always fall asleep in the pub and then you know and they would just thought it was hilarious that this guy was an alcoholic and I was like oh that's really sad and then um and then I just thought well you'd never do that at a heroin addict's funeral would you <laughs> you know so that was just like this simile that came out of that whereas I just thought you know Imagine doing that at a heroin addict's funeral. You'd be like, oh, here's one of Mike. He's gouging out on the sofa again. <laughs> Look, he's got a needle hanging out of his arm. Or, oh, here's another one. He fell asleep behind the bins. We had to, you know, that kind of crazy shit. And um, and then another, another thought, I thought at one point, like, I wonder if I'll get this many people at my funeral, you know? And it's like, what? what room is there in 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 your head at a funeral to have those kind of egoic thoughts about how popular you might be when it's your time to leave this mortal coil yeah so I mean it was just it was a way of kind of processing that and then when I did that show it was profound actually because a a man came up to me after the show and thanked me and he said my mum died two weeks ago and that really helped me to process her passing so that was what and I've also used it to like I was saying I was very ashamed of my sexuality and more recently about two or three years ago I did a one woman show about getting pregnant the gay way again I used therapeutic comedy to kind of show up on stage and talk about my internalized homophobia and um it was a it was a profound experience I after that show I have changed I've absolutely changed and um 
And and as well as it being quite kind of serious, I brought some drama into it. It was also so funny. So um, I'm not blowing my own horn. I'm just, <laughs> it was funny. Like I thought it was funny. So, you know, I was really glad to kind of marry the two and be able to kind of educate people about what goes on inside us. Amazing. I think shame and stigma to me are such huge challenges that we have to overcome societally. But first of all, personally and I know that for myself it's still an ongoing process you know I still have a lot of shame around my addiction and the places that my addiction took me to um and every time I do anything public facing you know even slightly um whether that is you know a Facebook post or a radio report or whatever um it still feels like I have to kind of brace myself you know and and go no this is all right it's safe to do you can do this because I still feel shame you know I still feel sort of slightly dirty about the fact that I'm an, an addict how has that been for you do you feel that still or has that gone I don't I don't feel shame around being an addict anymore and I don't hold self stigma anymore about it but I can't change the stigma out there um, not by force anyway. I mean, we, we do it one story at a time. But I think what comedy does and storytelling in general is that we get to own without the need for sympathy or approval our, our human experience. You know, comedy connects people with their empathy and it pulls down the barriers that separate us. Humour encourages us to be forgiving and open-minded, whether our stories are the same or not. And and there's so much of it that is, you know, a bit silly and that's okay too. But within it, I'm sharing my truth. And if you're in the audience and you're somebody who doesn't share their truth, because shame keeps, shame keeps us uh, in the dark. It needs to be in secret. Bringing a light, which is what we do with a comedy or telling our story in general, brings a light to that dark place where shame hides. And, you know, and people hear our stories and they go, well, I didn't think of an addict as somebody who who is like you. I get that all the time or not all the time, but I've had that in the past. Like, you don't look like an addict or you don't sound like an addict. And it's like, you know, well, you know, everybody is an addict. You know, everybody's trying to escape something. Yeah. But also when we've been in recovery for a a time, we do recover. When I think back to how I was during my using, you know, and how I am now, the two are almost like two different beings. And it's sometimes it's hard for me to even connect that I was that person. What I love about your comedy, basically, is is that it puts you in the hero role as well you're, you're so empowered in that role um if you're tackling difficult issues from your own past you're not something someone to be sympathized with you are as you say it's it's about empathy um but you're very much in the driving seat and there's he, there's huge power isn't there in in making an audience laugh i think that must just be the biggest buzz ever is it anywhere close to the jesus moment that you had Oh, the Jesus moment. I mean, that's above and beyond, isn't it? But that experience that I had back in the hospital where I did experience that kind of flow of of consciousness and love and felt my connection, that is something that I've actually been taking the slow road with, you know, instead of trying to get there through drugs and 
and you know and, and find that connection that way it, it comes slowly through heartfelt connections with other people you know my meditation my praying my my growth my emotional growth and my service on this planet you know to make the world a better place it started off with comedy and telling my story and then I really was fascinated with the therapeutic aspect and so I retrained as a a therapist and and I and I went a whole level deeper on my own recovery on my own healing from the the family trauma and you know and I was able to really smash through some of those really negative beliefs that I was holding even in recovery like I'm not good enough I'm unlovable I mean they were they were deep inside but you know they were they were having they were impacting my relationships and um, I was able to kind of work through that and then bringing that into the work that I did with my students changed everything and, and brought it to a whole other level I don't know there's something so profound when somebody finally kind of opens up and cries and says I you know I don't think it's all right to be me and then they see in connection with other people that they're loved right where they're at and then they go on to do comedy and that's just like phenomenal that experience I mean I said it was um it must be like a real kind of feeling of power to be on stage and making people laugh. But I also think it must be the most terrifying and vulnerable place to be because, I mean, there's one thing kind of getting up there and sharing your story, but then it's also getting up there, you're sharing some of your story, but you're also needing people to laugh, at least in some of the right places. That must be quite terrifying for people you work with. Do they, do they perform in public? It is terrifying. It's horrible. <laughs> like I don't recommend it. Nobody do comedy. But that that's kind of how I felt when I was out there in the comedy scene. I hated it because I didn't feel... I just felt like if I go out there, people just need me to be funny. And if I'm not funny, they'll reject me. And, and, I, just, and I just bombed, you know. I bombed because I didn't get behind my own stuff. And I didn't... I didn't try, I didn't kind of understand why I would go out there and make jokes about being in the psychiatric ward when people were kind of walking in front of the stage, sloshing their, you know, their beer jugs and, you know, and not really listening. And I thought, why would I do that? That's, I just felt like absolutely insane. So I had to move it into a different arena and that made it safe and healthy and so we always do alcohol-free comedy shows, but everybody knows who's coming to the show as an audience member, what we do. And when I MC from the front, I, I let everyone know that they're basically in a therapy session, that they are getting therapy as much as the person on, on the stage. And that changes everything, you see. You just, you've got, if it's your house party, you can make the rules. And that's kind of what I needed to do. And, um, and so you see people absolutely take off. So what's the vision for you now? I know that you, you're doing some working on some really exciting things at the moment um, and you've got a new space. Um, tell me what the future holds for Hilarapy. Uh, we have a comedy studio, like a TV studio. Hilarapy Studios is opening up. It's just a kind of a brand new comedy ecosystem I mean world domination is the vision you know being a lighthouse having this kind of work available to anyone anywhere 
we've got an online program which which has covid has given us that gift all my stuff was outward facing and 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 covid brought us online which which has changed everything because now we have people joining us from all over the world which just blows blows my tiny mind um so i'm i'm constantly learning with this it's it's a unfolding journey and i'm beating a new path and so i often you know i i trip and stumble and i make mistakes but i have a great team and I have a wonderful community of amazing creatives all over the world and are being part of this and, and just, yeah, just just sharing our light and shining a light and on the human experience and saying, hey, it is okay to be human. Yes, exactly that. Thank you so much to Lizzie for sharing her incredible story and for all the work she's doing to bring light to the world. I found that conversation so nourishing and uplifting. I hope you got something from it too. There are links to her organisation Hilarapy and her recent TED Talk in the description. If you want to keep updated with the podcast, please hit follow or subscribe. And if you've got a second to pop a little review or rating in there as well, uh, that really does make a big difference. The music you can hear is composed by Double O and the incredible artwork you can see over on our Instagram page at Back to Life Pod is by Georgie Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us. Take good care. Bye.